And welcome to another episode of the weekly podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, where we bring you in-depth interviews with leading opinion shapers, and we include your questions. Today, we talk with James Fallows, who is one of the nation's leading journalists and nonfiction authors, having, in fact, won the National Book Award back in 1983 for a nonfiction book called National Defense. He also won an Emmy for a documentary on China, and he is founding chair of the New America Foundation. His articles have appeared in many of the country's leading major magazines, and he was editor of U.S. News & World Report, as well as national correspondent for The Atlantic, and a regular contributor to NPR's Weekend All Things Considered. He was born in Redlands, California, and educated at Harvard, where he was editor of the Harvard Crimson, and Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. His books, there are many, I'll give you a few, they include Looking at the Sun, Postcards from Tomorrow Square, Breaking the News, China Airborne, and with his wife, Deborah, more recently, the bestseller, Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, which became an HBO documentary in 2021. I want to welcome James Fellows to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Michael, it's always a pleasure and an honor to be on the airwaves with you, so thank you. And a pleasure and honor to have you. Last time we were together, it was not virtual. It was a 20-year celebration of my work in the public radio station here in San Francisco. It was at the Presidio, and it was very memorable, and... Well, we talked a lot about politics, and we'll do that, I hope, uh, in the course of this podcast, but much more I want to talk to you about, even maybe getting into your Neanderthal ancestry, among other things, which I didn't <laughs> mention in that biographical sketch. <laughs> Let me begin, though, just on a political note, because as we're speaking here, former President Trump has been not only indicted, but pleaded not guilty in Miami and in New York, and Georgia's up ahead, as well as D.C. Where's all this shaking out in your mind. I mean, you have been one of our great observers of politics and uh, political drama and sagas. What do you see? So, Michael, you know, you recall the famous aphorism from Yogi Berra that predicts it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. And I think that's my my approach to most things political and certainly those involving Donald Trump. Back, back in 2015, I made the mistake of writing in a blog post for The Atlantic that no person like this could ever be the nominee of a sane political party, and therefore it was he was not going to become president. And that's the last prediction I've made about Donald Trump. What seems to be observable, though, from the, the trend of both political and legal developments is legally, it certainly looks as if uh, Trump is in a whole mess of trouble and that everywhere he turns, there's some new um, prosecutor or district attorney setting uh, his or her sights on him. There are all these civil lawsuits that, that are underway. And so it does appear to me, based on knowledge as of you know early summer of 2023, as if the legal um, friction and drag that these problems will, uh, will cast on Donald Trump will exceed whatever rebound benefit he gets from heartening all the support among the people who think that he is their martyr, as Trump himself put it recently, that he is sort of the Jesus figure absorbing uh, uh, absorbing abu abuse for, for, for larger good. So I think this is bad news for Donald Trump. I think there is a, a plurality of the Republican Party, their officialdom, which thinks that too. And they've been praying for now eight years that something would remove him from the stage, but some of them are actually beginning to, to uh, criticize him too, which is different from what we've seen for quite a while. Well, thank you for uh, being a little bit of a prognosticator here. I know you're, I'm reluctant to make crystal ball type of things as well, uh, and I want to stay with politics, but before I do, I guess maybe I'll put you in the uncomfortable position of being a little more 
futuristic because I'm looking at—I want to bring questions in early, and I'm looking at a question here from one of our listeners, our regular listeners, Jay, who's in Reno, Nevada. And people may not know, I didn't mention this in your biography, that you have a history of writing about technology. We have a lot of people who follow this podcast in the technology world. I should mention that uh, Jim Fellows did a column on technology for the New York Times and for the Atlantic and was a six-month program designer for Microsoft. I didn't even get into that and all your bona fides. But Jay wants to know, and we've been talking about this, we did a whole podcast on it, as generative AI becomes more prevalent, how will the role of human creators evolve? Will humans collaborate with AI systems as co-creators, or do you anticipate a shift towards valuing human craftsmanship and originality even more? Uh, that's a great question. Thanks for, for including it. And my view of most things, as we discussed over the, uh, the decades, Michael, is that contradictory realities um, can be true. And so I think that, that it is certain sort of axiomatically that AI will change things about how, how all of us work, because that's what every single technology innovation of the past several millennia uh, has done, whether it's the printing press, which was profoundly uh, disruptive, whether it was the steam engine, uh, whether it was powered flight, et cetera. So certainly things will be different uh, a decade from now, a half century from now. The, the, the assertion by some people that AI is going to be profoundly dislocating for professions and ways of life, et cetera, that would require it being different in degree from every other technological innovation that's ever happened before. And maybe that's possible, but I would, I would doubt it. And so my guess is that it will simultaneously, it will in the short run disrupt a lot of things. And there'll be adjustments again, as there've been for, as there have been for every kind of technology step in the, in the past, uh, the automobile changed profound things about American settlement uh, patterns and dating patterns and everything else. So it will disrupt, uh, it will become an adjunct for lots of things that people have done. We can just think of the ways that automatic mapping system, Google Maps and Waze and other things of that sort, uh, and, and having the, the pluses and minuses uh, the ways in which human intelligence now has this sort of instantly recallable database. If you don't remember exactly who won the 1848 presidential election, you can you can look it up quickly. That will change the kinds of things that people think about. I think also will have a sort of premium and scarcity value on things that are distinctively human. Uh, we've seen, again, as mass production rate lowered the price of many things, the handmade, the non-mass-produced item became more precious in certain ways. So I think all the possibilities in Jay's question will probably be evident to us you know, at 10 years from now. I say, yes, it made these things more valuable. Yes, it made these things less valuable. And people have found new ways to use this tool as they have all previous ones. I'm extrapolating a bit from what you're saying. Maybe make humanity less valuable. I mean, that's the danger, especially if you have bad actors involved, isn't it? Yes, and I think that, that, again, everything that has happened to us as a species has that mixed effect. So maybe eight or 10 years ago, I was doing a, a cover story for The Atlantic. It was based on a survey we'd done of a lot of leading technology authorities, academics, entrepreneurs, all sorts of people, asking them the absurd question of ranking the most important technological breakthroughs since the wheel. And there, uh, there was a whole list, and it came out, interestingly, the number one by a mile was the printing press. And, and the printing press and radio broadcast, electricity and cars and, and all the other things you can, and air conditioning, 
they all have had the effect of diminishing humanity in certain ways and empowering in other ways, some of them foreseen and some of them not. So I think that AI will, if it is like everything else that's ever happened before, will diminish some kinds of human skill and human touch and enhance and empower others. And I can't say exactly how in either category, but that's what everything else, everything else before has done. Computers have done that. The radio has done that. TV has done it. They are, uh, as we say, tools for good or evil. And tools for losing jobs, alas, uh, although there is some job creation. Another question maybe asking you to be a little crystal ball gazing. This is from Reed uh, in Santa Rosa. Given that 40% of Republicans back to politics seem not to be swayed by the former president's troubles and obvious faults, can any of the challengers rise to gain the nomination? That That's a really tough question, uh, as the other one was too. And I'll introduce a very recent data point I've learned about just in the hour, last hour or two. There was a, a major poll, I think it was ABC News and Ipsos that came out um, five or six days ago, which showed that Trump's support among Republicans was undiminished uh, by the, the indictment. This was, and the poll was taken maybe the day after the indictment came out when almost nobody had read it and there was very little news analysis of it, except the, the, um, spin on Fox saying how this was just one more political uh, twist. And that same poll, again, taken five days ago, as you and I talked, Michael, showed that 80% of Republicans, 8-0, thought that the charges against Trump were ginned up political attacks. There was another poll I saw just today, which showed significant erosion in both of those levels of support from the Republicans. Fewer of them saying that it was a political attack, more of them saying there was something serious here, and fewer of them pledging loyalty to Trump. And there have been enough cracks in the iceberg. Uh, you have Chris Christie in his role as sort of kamikaze candidate going straight at Trump. You have uh, the likes of Mitch McConnell and other figures in the Senate conspicuously not supporting him. You have declining level of Republicans sort of stepping up to say they're all on his side, Ron DeSantis being, being uh, an exception. And I think the great question for the Republicans over the last now eight years since Trump uh, declared was when would, when would enough of them dare to speak up to make it safe for the others. I think uh, as many most most accounts have, have shown by Republican um, writers and politicians, most of them think that Trump is a real problem for them because it's very difficult to see how he gets elected again, even with the electoral college skew. So I, I think that it is there is there's this pent-up energy in both political parties for the next generation of candidates to have their chance in the sunlight. The Democrats are discouraging that because they are sticking with Biden. Challenging an incumbent, an incumbent president almost always leads to that party's defeat in the next election, and they know that. It's not happening in the Republican Party because so many of them have been terrified of Trump, terrified to, tr to criticize Trump. We see signs that might be changing, and we don't know whether these are just occasional patterns of rain or the beginning of the storm. Well, we just don't know. You know, it occurs to me, you have uh, a well-deserved immense respect uh, as a journalist, but you're out there as a Democrat. You've always been a Democrat. You were a speechwriter for President Carter as a very young man, I should add. And I wonder what kind of uh, impediment that has, uh, particularly since things have become so polarized and so politicized that now you have President Trump former President Trump talking about Democrats as communists and they're trying to politicize all this. This is a, 
uh, essentially, uh, you know, an orchestrated and, and uh, complete attempt to undermine me in the worst way that has ever happened in American history, all this hyperbole. How does that affect your role as a journalist? So thanks also for asking that. I'll have one instrumental operational um, answer and then a sort of a bigger picture answer. The instrumental and operational one is that when I worked for Jimmy Carter, which uh, I was in my mid-20s then, I just had one magazine job at the Washington Monthly. I had sort of no fixed employment after that. I was doing freelance articles for a number of magazines, including Rolling Stone and Texas Monthly then. And the chance came more or less out of the blue to work in the Carter campaign. They were they were getting momentum in the primaries. They needed more, more cheap talent. <laughs> And unemployed writers in their mid-20s are cheap talent. Uh, my wife, was Deb, was in graduate school then. We didn't know it, but she just was pregnant with our first uh, son, Tom. And so I, I, I asked my, my um, advisor friends what to do about this, because this was two generations ago. And the idea that you could be, you couldn't be in politics and journalism too. And one of them in particular, Charlie Peters, the editor of the Washington Monthly Magazine, where I had worked, made what is, in retrospect, a really um, wise and important um, observation to me. He said, "You should, if you want to be a reporter, a journalist, a writer, you should work in politics one time. And his argument was, one is really different from zero, uh, because having even some exposure to um, operating politics is way different than reading about it. You know about things you couldn't possibly know any other way. And I feel as if I know those things by being on the campaign trail and in the in the White House. Um, <laughs> but and I, I went by my old White House office last week when I was uh, uh, called, or a few days ago when I was uh, going into a meeting there and saw the people sitting in the same room where I was 46 years earlier, and they were reacting like it was somebody from the Grover Cleveland administration, you know, understandably. Um, there were two but, Grover Cleveland administrations, which was. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I, I, this would be the later one, of course. Uh, so one is different from zero, but one is also really different from more than one. Because if it's more than one, that means when you're in journalism, you are thinking about going back. And if you say, I'm doing this one time and I'm never doing this again, so you never have to wonder about, am I writing about this politician either nicely or hostily because I'm thinking of another um, another immersion? Are you writing about this or that issue in some way that's angling for a job? Are you going soft, et cetera, et cetera? So I'm really glad to have done it once. I'm really glad to have done it no more than once. So that was a particular episode. The big picture about, you know, having made that decision for myself, the big picture about how to present this to the public is um, that I can't pretend to be, quote, objective, unquote, uh, because we could talk for 20 hours about objectivity and its limits and and uh, impossibility, et cetera. I don't think it exists in journalism. I mean, uh, right. Really, I mean, yeah. everybody is a... Everybody has his or her own story, own set of eyes, own background, Language, own ambitions. Too. Yes, exactly. And what you can do is to be as transparent as possible. When I was living in China or Japan or Southeast Asia, I was writing about them as an American. When I am writing about issues involving uh, principally women, I'm writing them as a man. Uh, when I'm writing things about uh, <laughs> Florida versus California, I am from California. And I think when I'm writing about party politics, I always make clear that that's no secret I once worked in a Democratic White House. So I think that um, uh, my friend Burt Gladstone, whom you must know, has uh, a line about 
uh, transparency being the new objectivity. So if you just say, you, know, you should know this part about my background and uh, you know, judge it as you may. One other thing on this point, a, a standard that Charlie Peters also said about what you disclose as a writer is that anything the reader or the listener might think was relevant, if they found it out later on, you should let them know up front. So if it would be relevant, lots of things about me are not relevant, uh, but the fact that I once worked for a Democrat is relevant. So I, I, I err on the side of mentioning that. And here's Chris. Uh, this is sort of apropos, uh, who's joining us from Tempe, Arizona, and is asking you to reflect on pros and cons of having become a celebrity journalist and your work and content in terms of credibility as a journalist. So the premise of the question is, is that you're a celebrity journalist. <laughs> yes. So that, that's one I, <laughs> I I would not buy. One time, you know, both of, both of my two sons, whom are are the best young men in the world, and Deb and I love them dearly, and their total of six children we love uh, at least at least as dearly. They've both gone in other directions in life. They both are tech world entrepreneurs and very successful ones at them. And when they were in elementary school here in Washington, this was soon after I worked for Jimmy Carter, there was some project of telling us what your parents do uh, for their life. And one of my sons, who was then maybe in third or fourth grade, was saying, oh, my dad types. And I think this was, this has always been my self-image, the guy who types and then you send it out into the ether. So I, um, I don't have any, uh, <laughs> I don't have any image of myself as celebrity journalist. I feel very fortunate to have worked, you know, on, on, uh, in, for leading magazines and with leading book publishers. But so, uh, that's, that's my reaction. Does, is there a follow-up? <laughs> Well, that question came from Arizona. It makes me think about people like Andy Biggs and Carrie Lake. And we're getting rhetoric that is so steamed and, and heated, overheated now, probably from both sides, but particularly on social media with respect to Trump's base. There's a lot of talk even about civil war and about violence, although not many people showed up in Miami, even though he had made the clarion call for them to come and show their support. Again, let's try to sort all this out with you because you have been such a you, like Walt Whitman says, "You're the man. You were there." You know, <laughs> yeah, encompassing multitudes too. Uh, so to loop back just very quickly to, to a couple of the previous things we were talking about um, on the celebrity uh, journalism front, the only time I think I, because I'm not on TV very much, the only time I've ever been sort of recognized in the crowd, you would know better than I, Michael, because it's when I was doing a lot of things for NPR. People heard me in an airplane or a restaurant and they recognized my voice. This must happen to you all the time. And that's a different kind of, of, of recognizability. And so that, that was sort of touching when it happened. But usually I say, when it, does, when it does happen to me, I say, you got a really good ear because my voice is changing to some mm. extent, getting a little laryngeal uh, through the years uh, as uh, they take their toll. But I guess the real sense of what I'm getting at here in terms of politics is we're in a particularly volatile time and a time that's of great concern to many people with good yes. reasons. It, it certainly is um, in good reason. And the other thing I wanted to quickly loop back on is when I mentioned that, um, that the ice may be breaking under Trump, the fact that essentially nobody has answered his call. 
about his previous indictment in New York and this current one in Florida is interesting and quite different from the horror of January 6th, for example, and different from what, what many news media were predicting when his first indictment was coming up. There was a front page story in the New York Times saying that this will be civil war, this will tear the nation apart, and it doesn't seem to be the case. My view on the potential for civil war metaphorically and challenges to democracy um, more concretely is that, again, simultaneous contradictory realities are both true. On the one hand, this is a really, really fraught time for the nation. We've never before had a president or an ex-president who was not simply so reckless, but so intentional in bringing out the worst side in the American character and the human character. That side has always been there. And this is, is the country that gave us the Ku Klux Klan. It's the country that gave us lynchings. It gave us lots of, lots of other things. And most leaders have been distinguished for trying to channel and damp down those impulses. You can think of Abraham Lincoln. You can think in his own way of Ronald Reagan excerpting a lot of what he did. You can think of Barack Obama, not red states and blue states, but the United States. You can think of people trying, you can think of uh, Joe Biden's uh, rhetoric now, and you can't find any counterpart to Trump unless it were George Wallace, who did not become president, unless it were Theodore Bilbo, who didn't get elected outside um, Mississippi, et cetera. So Huey this Long. is real. Uh, Huey Long, Huey Long, who had at least a sort of a more genuine populist tone to what he was pitching than Trump, which was all culture war populism as opposed to economic uh, populism. So Trump is unique in his vileness, in my view, the vileness of what he tried to bring out in others. On the other hand, so it's really bad, and it's not the only bad time the U.S. has had. As we've discussed before, um, my theory of U.S. history is that it's always been a struggle. It's always been a contest between the forces tearing us apart and the forces trying to offset that and bring us back together. And so the challenge for this moment is for all moments is to strengthen and magnify those forces, damping down the bad, you know, raising up the good and finding what are the sources of concord rather than discord. What about our defense? I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that you wrote a book about national defense, and I know you watch these things and monitor them very carefully. And I'm wondering, especially with documents being put on Discord uh, from uh, airmen in Massachusetts with documents in a bathroom in Mar-a-Lago with now a major global cyber attack, uh, we seem to be in, uh, again, pretty fraught kind of state. I did a big cover story for The Atlantic about a dozen years ago, and I may even have discussed with it, you discussed it with you previously, the title in that story was called The Tragedy of the American Military, but its working title within the Atlantic until it was published was Chicken Hawk Nation. Oh, I remember it was that, about yeah. the paradox yeah. of a country that was always at war and having record defense budgets and having people deployed all around the earth and having encampments every place, but simultaneously had the tiniest fraction of its population personally involved. It's, I think these numbers are still true, that it's still well under 1% of the U.S. population that served at any point in either Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the other, other theaters of war of the past 20 years now. And it still is just, uh, you know, the, the, as a population, as a percentage of the U.S. population, the standing military is now far lower 
than it has been for, for a long time. And approaching sort of the, the 1930s, pre-World War II levels of its smallness, even as the budget grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was saying that this was bad, I think, for everybody involved. Bad for the military in, in sort of increasing a sense of isolation and uh, they are an encampment of martial values for a fallen nation. Bad for defense policy and defense planning because there's not any kind of scrutiny of wasteful spending, which keeps going up and up and up. So I don't worry directly about threats to the nation except for nuclear threats, which are their own sort of nightmare scenario for, for a very long time. I do worry about the corroding effect on politics, on the military, on civic culture. If you have such a costly establishment that so few people feel any skin in the game about, literally and, and metaphorically. So that is, um, that, that's my, my view. Some a future generation of political leaders, I believe, will have had some firsthand experience in the military, as Ron DeSantis did with his Guantanamo questioning, because I think we need another generation of leaders who can say, I've been there. I'm not afraid to talk about reducing the military budget. I'm not afraid to talk about the things that um, uh, that military officers can do wrong in a different way from <laughs> from how Donald Trump does it, talking about my generals and the bad generals. Uh, that, that's not what we want. And yet you hear the argument from those in the GOP and Trump's base that, you know, he made things perhaps more peaceful because he was able to reach out to Putin. He said he could solve that problem in, what, a number of hours. Uh, he was able to reach out even to Kim Jong-un, even in what has been characterized as a kind of love affair between the two of them. Uh, I mean, in other words, making our allies pay more, making things rougher with our allies, but in many people's minds, working more against war and more against the kind of things that led to Afghanistan and Iraq. That's the argument. Uh, that's the argument. Here again, I'll, I'll I'll note for anybody joining us late that I did once work for a Democratic president, uh, Jimmy Carter, of course, a Naval Academy graduate and former submarine officer himself. These, I, I think that that Trump's pressure on the NATO allies might actually have been beneficial. Um, Trump, of course, pro approached it from the perspective of a guy making a deal and feeling that other people were welshing, as they used to put it, or uh, lowballing. They owe us money, uh, and yes. they're not paying enough. And here, Trump, excuse me, just in Miami said food for everyone, but didn't pay. I mean, <laughs> Trump is known to welch on many, many deals, to put it mildly. But anyway, I just... Yes, yeah, so, so th that may have ha had some, some payoff. My view of the other engagements with the Chinese when Xi Jinping had a big festival for him, with uh, the North Koreans when uh, Kim Jong-il was doing something similar, with Putin, who obviously was, um, it evidence seems to show, viewed Trump as a sort of informal ally within the, the U.S. government, uh, that all of those were the part of Trump that loves spectacle being flattered. And the part of a U.S. president that is thinking about U.S. national interest was way in, way in in the background. For example, with China, where, as you know, I lived for a number of years with with Deb, um, the Chinese were just laughing in their state media about how gullible Trump had been. You give him a big banquet, you let him say this is the greatest festival since Genghis Khan or whatever, and and, and he would say he would then say, oh. Uh, Xi Jinping is my friend, even though Xi Jinping was not doing a single thing that was uh, beneficial to the U.S. And of course, there were also tough trade policies then, which we can get back to. S similarly, um, with with uh, Kim Jong-il, 
the U.S. has been very careful with all of its allies about what kind of face you're going to give to the North Koreans and the very strict lines of what to do and not to do. And Trump was having his big breakthrough of stepping across the, the DMZ line. It's very difficult to see any payoff that got for South Korea, Japan, the U.S., any, anybody else, and Putin, I don't even need to, to get into. So I think that there are certain parts of Trump's policy that could have been good. Toughness on the NATO allies, some of the trade policy with China, I think actually may have been beneficial. Um, I think, but I think they are outweighed by um, by the the undercutting of U.S. interest that was was going on, or by what you described as the vileness. We've got a lot of questions. I want to get to as many as yeah. we can. But before I do and, that, and I will be more concise. <laughs> no, you're doing fine. Uh, your usual succinctness, in fact. <laughs> um, you mentioned China, and I just have to ask you because you've been a China watcher and have written books on China. We did a podcast with Orville Schell, and we. Could, fleshed out a lot of fascinating uh, things about China just in terms of the way he sees things. I want to find out how you see things, though, because at this point, I think it's a waiting game in terms of when she is going to pounce on Taiwan and what he's going to do, and in the South China Sea, likewise. So we're waiting for that at the same time that he's playing this role of the major diplomat, almost taking United States role of diplomacy away from the United States as a major player. Uh, I mean, as we speak here, Abbas is in China. Who would have thought? Uh, and uh, the Saudis and the Iranians brokering a deal, thanks to Xi. I mean, that's part of the role. But I don't you think he's just sort of waiting to pounce on Taiwan? So I heard that podcast, which I enjoyed. Orville is a, Shell is a dear friend and a mentor and somebody uh, whom Deb and I always turn to uh, on China Matters to to, um, you know, for, for guidance. And his novel about China, My, My Old Home, was just magnificent, even apart from his policy books. So I, I defer to Orville and all these judgments. My sense is that, number one, it, it is a darkening time in China and from China for everybody else who deals with the country. That, that compared, Deb and I lived there between 06, 2006 and 2011, during what, in retrospect, seems like the golden age of Xi Jin, uh, of sorry, of Hu Jintao, where things were sort of month by month and year by year, be, year being opened up and liberalized, and obviously it's been the reverse for the past uh, decade plus. Um, now, people in China, I, I think, economically and other ways, are being constricted in a fashion that is just bad for them and bad for the world. And China's approach to the rest of the world has been elbows out in a really disruptive way. I, when it comes to the soft power, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the soft, <clears throat> bear with me for a second here, Michael. <clears throat> so when it comes to the soft power charm initiative of Xi Jinping, my impression is that has backfired as much as is as it has paid off, that Chinese foreign aid has often sown resentment because it comes with even more complications than U.S. or European foreign aid. And there just has not been a lot of, there have not been a lot of countries who have sort of come under China's wing in the last 10 years, as many as uh, as uh, Xi Jinping would like, even though there's these are these examples that you are talking about. The whole sort of periphery of China has been more more solidly allied with the U.S. in the last decade, I think, than, than, than before. The Taiwan question is really a nightmarish one because, in principle, 
war is inevitable. In principle, the PRC in Beijing and the Republic of China on Taiwan have irreconcilable differences. They each think they're in control of their their destiny. They each think they're the one China. And and most China authorities, starting with Orville, would say that no Chinese leader like Xi Jinping could ever renounce the claims to taking over Taiwan, including by force. So in principle, this has to lead to war. In practice, it's now been 45 plus years of sort of saying, yeah, war may come, but not today. And the not today has rolled over. And the question is, can that keep rolling over indefinitely, which is what essentially U.S. policy has worked toward of arming Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act, et cetera. I still, not having been in China since before the pandemic and bowing in my authority about this, I still have thought it's so much in everybody's interest to keep saying not today that we can keep having the not todays. But um, it's tremendously dangerous if Xi Jinping were to decide okay, today. Let's stay with geopolitics because I want to go to some more questions. And we've got a uh, Hasmuk joining us from Cape Town. says, when the U.S. sneezes, Africa gets pneumonia is an adage. Uh, with the messy wrangle between U.S. and South Africa with respect to Russia, is Africa a deluded patient? It is just a reality of U.S. foreign policy that its attention is directed in ways that are not carefully aligned with its long-term interests. For example, it is still the case that uh, that the most sought-after plum of becoming a diplomat, U.S. diplomat, is to be the ambassador to the court of St. James in, in London. And yes, England is important, and yes, there's a special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., but the U.K. is not the most important country uh, to the U.S. You can, in different ways, China is, and India is, and Mexico is, and Canada is, and there's lots of other candidates you could have for that. In the same life is unfair chronicle of how and why the U.S. allots its attention and its resources and its diplomatic stakes, it just is a cruel reality that Africa and Latin America, speaking about South America now, uh, come up short in what the U.S. pays political attention to, devotes its resources to, has its has its most um, intense strategic arguments about. And this is um, the way it has been for reasons we can all um, have our, our, our theories about, and that Africa claims U.S governmental attention, mainly when there's something really going wrong there. And forgive me, Jim, but just to link it to China, I mean, they're doing vast amounts in terms of not only soft diplomacy, but working with Africa and, uh, I mean, not only with Africa for their own resources and their own economic benefits, but lending a great deal to Africa more than we are. Oh, that's, that certainly is the case. And I think part of Chinese um, foreign policy over the last, even before Xi Jinping, and coming with his Belt and Road policy was the idea that there are these sort of areas, these neglected areas by the U.S. in specific and the Europeans in different ways, where there's a real sort of um, diplomatic vacuum, if you will, that China could, could occupy. And Africa was first on that list and Latin America second on that list and certain parts of Southeast Asia as, as well. My observation, not based on firsthand reporting, but just by reading, is that, again, a lot of this has had mixed results for the Chinese. 
that they have um, maybe created as much resentment as they have um, support and accord in parts of Africa. But but again, you could say that about U.S. Um, uh, foreign interventions as well. But yes, the Chinese relationship with Africa is a really important um, reality for uh, U.S. Um, strategists to observe. And returning to life is unfair for the moment. The way the U.S. is most likely to pay attention to Africa in this administration under Biden and whatever comes next is by raising the, quote, Chinese menace, unquote. You know, look at all these ways that China is tying up governments and economies and supply chains and all the rest. The U.S. needs to be present. That's sort of how it happened in the Cold War as well. So I'm not defending the U.S., um, uh, what the questioner asked about, but I'm just sort of saying this is how it has been for a while. And let me thank all those of you who are sending really good questions. And here's another one from Juan in Mexico City who says, do you think that the fragmentation of the media is a consequence or cause of each camp trying to disseminate their truth? Yes. I would say yes and um, I, I am a member of the dreaded boomer generation. So I grew up in the 60s and you know the late 50s through the 60s in my hometown of Redlands, California, and then at college in an area where for, where for both economic and for technological reasons, there was a forced sort of uh, not homogenization, but standardization of the news diet for Americans. Back in those days, for technological reasons, you could only have three main TV networks that had national reach because they were, and they were regulated by the FCC and was over the air broadcasting. So that was a, there was a kind of forced um, common TV news diet that people got that had good effects. There were some common uh, grounds for information, sort of like there is when you watch Americans watch the Super Bowl now or watch, as some of them still do, the Oscars, et cetera. It had bad effects too, because until this very small sort of handful of people decided that something was worth covering, it wasn't covered. This was true for the civil rights movement in the early 60s. It was true with the Vietnam War. Uh, until Walter Cronkite had his famous declaration in 1968 that he thought this was a, a failed enterprise. Cronkite was then this, the dominant TV news figure on CBS. Uh, so there was technological um, uh, forced unity. There was also business model forced unity. That There were big, a few big regional papers. Um, where I, that My town was 70 miles away from Los Angeles, but the only big daily paper we could get was the LA Times because you couldn't get the East Coast papers, uh, just they, they couldn't uh, be transmitted. So for all sorts of reasons, this has been broken up now for um, the internet reasons and other ones I don't need to, to detail. Um, I think that, again, we have the good and bad. The good is there are specialized pr uh, products for, for specialized audiences and elite audiences and programs like the one we're talking on now that wouldn't have happened in the days of only three networks and of, of all only mass markets. Um, but I think we're in a time when, when targeted media have been weaponized, to use a familiar term now. And, and objectively, this is happening mainly on the right wing and mainly to the Republican Party. Fox News has had a role that has no parallel even from, from uh, Democratic or left-leaning um, uh, counterpart um, uh, operations. And, and the, the $787 million settlement that Fox News paid rather than expose itself to a potentially more damaging trial recently is an illustration of something that just doesn't happen 
to uh, other, quote, mainstream or left-wing organizations. So, yes, the the fragmentation of media, this is not the first time it has occurred. When I was a kid, my hometown was uh, supported Barry Goldwater, and the John Birch newsletter was a big force. Uh, Human Events, where a right-wing uh, newspaper was a big force in the hometown. But it is it is more of a problem now. We need to figure out ways to cope with it, which I don't, I, I haven't figured out. Well, one thing that kind of fascinates me, you were talking about new data points. I just saw one that Fox News, after almost two years of being the leader, has been replaced by MSNBC in terms of cable news. I don't know if that bodes anything. What do you think? I, I think it is, it is potentially significant, I think, in this way. There have been a number of times you know, when, when Trump won the Electoral College, even though losing by about three million votes in the popular vote uh, in 2016, the main um, press reaction was, oh, here's something going on we didn't know about. We had this infinity of guy in a diner stories over the next um, two, two or three years. Most, most of the electoral indications since then have indicated the other thing that maybe there are people we're not paying enough attention to who are more centrist than we thought, who are more upset by Supreme Court rulings, et cetera, as we thought. And probably the most dramatic ruling indication of this, I think, was the 2022 midterms, the ones that happened last fall, where even on the day of the, the day before the election, the New York Times had a big front page story about Red wave is coming. Democrats prepare for sweeping losses. Trump message is spreading. And the results weren't that. And we saw that the power of the uh, the uh, Dobbs ruling overturning Roe v. Wade seemed to be the most important factor in that election and not inflation, not the withdrawal from Afghanistan, not the things Fox News has been talking about. I mentioned the we were t- discussing the diminished crowds for Trump at his um indictments and arraignments. And so maybe this is another sign, the sort of diminishing audience for Fox, that there's less there there than there used to be. And that that maybe it's time for the media to pay attention to a to a rebounding or a regrowing center in American politics. Well, Tucker Carlson is gone. That's a factor, certainly, in their diminution. But also, uh, they've got Newsmax, and they've got Breitbart on the farther right, and they're taking audiences uh, away from Fox, aren't they? Uh, they? They certainly seem to be. And I'll mention one other thing that I, I wrote about just last night uh, as we talk on a, a sub, my subtext channel, which was the interview that uh, that Sean Hannity of, Hawks, uh, of Fox had with California's own Gavin Newsom uh, just, just recently, which ran for a full hour on Hannity. What was interesting to me was not simply that I thought Gavin Newsom did a very good job of making his case for the state, for his time, for the state, and for the Democratic um, uh, administration of Joe Biden. He was very good at that. But also, Hannity seemed, I will dare say, vulnerable in a way that you don't normally see on Fox. At one point, he said, oh, I didn't know that. And he was saying, well, this nothing personal about this. You know, you and I should go out for a beer. And yes, I'd love to have a longer debate with you. And there was a maybe, maybe uh, the people who are who are looking for Fox-owned business future will no longer think, as they apparently did during the 2020 elections, we have to keep pandering to our base, otherwise they'll desert us. Maybe they'll think they have to uh, pivot back toward, towards the center. Who knows? A- anything is possible. That could have been Irish camaraderie, too. You know, the, I remember the, the yes. book that Chris <laughs> Matthews did about how well he got along, with, Reagan got along with Tip O'Neill and 
It was the Irish thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a question from Gerald uh, in Richmond. He says, Boris Johnson, a known liar, has been given a column with the Daily Mail newspaper. Is there any wonder people distrust mainstream media? Well, what about that idea of celebrity journalism or, for that matter, someone like Johnson being given a column? Some thoughts from you? I think the <laughs> anything that's wrong with the U.S. press you can usually find a hundred times worse illustrations with the Fleet Street Press in the UK. Uh, you know, it's no accident. That's where the royal family has been having all these lawsuits. Um, when I, I was in graduate school in England long ago, and the <laughs> then the news of the world was a, I think, the best-selling tabloid that was outdid the the uh, National Enquirer in the U.S. So I think it is. It is not surprising to me. Is he signing up with, with the Daily Mail, did you say? Or, or yes, which, Daily yeah. Mail. So <laughs> the Daily Mail and the disgraced Boris Johnson, that's a match made in heaven. So I, I think that, 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 that is in the, in the shocking but not surprising category. And yet, I mean, from my perspective, mainstream journalism has become very tabloid. I mean, much more than we ever would have anticipated or expected, hasn't it? Yes. I'm talking about in, in the United States. Yes. Taking the Rupert Murdoch uh, across the pond paradigm here. I mean, it's what we've become too, so many of our, our major newspapers. Yes, and I, I think you can see that change. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll mention three outlets and ways in which I think you see and don't see the change. I think you see that change most in the New York Times. And the New York Times is this hybrid where I would say 98% of what it does is the best in the world when they're writing about science or they're writing about technology or they're writing about health or they're writing about whatever, or they're doing they're doing global coverage for a U.S. audience. They do that better than they've ever done it before and than any other new U.S. news organization does. And then you have the 2% that is their U.S. political coverage, which I think could be, it, it's as tabloid as you want. They had a story, I think just yesterday, called Trump and the Fun Factor, about the sort of joy in politics some of Trump's people are going to miss now that he was tied up in court. And I, I think there is a lot of tabloid that goes, I think the New York Times in its political coverage is much more tabloid-y uh, than it used to be. I'll say that the Wall Street Journal is is not tabloidy. Its editorial page is essentially the print version of Fox News. But its news coverage, I think, again, is like this other 98% of the New York Times, where it is good, it is thorough, it is, it is brave, it, it's investigative. I'll then also give an example from the world of, uh, a, a paired example from the world of, um, of, of broadcasts. I think the PBS NewsHour, uh, first with uh, Judy Woodruff and, you know, before her, uh, uh, Jim Lehrer and, and others, and after her, with his, her successors, is a really serious program that could have been on in the days of Walter Cronkite. And I mean that in mainly good ways. It has serious things. It says, what should you know about the world? And we're going to give them to you. Um, I think that the NPR news stories, I'm thinking particularly about um, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, are more like the New York Times than what I was describing. They are, of course, really good and they also have a sort of a, a more of a tabloidy air to them. So as always, it's a mixed picture, but I think you can see the tabloid uh, effect in different ways and different, different ones of our outlets. Here's Jay again. He says, what's the process of writing speeches for another person? Do you start with content and then add their voice, or do you do something different than that? 
there are two things, there are two traits you have to have to be a speechwriter. And the, the people sort of either have them or they don't. One is you have a skill as a mimic uh, and not necessarily imitating somebody's accent, but listening to that person and saying, oh, yeah, I know how that person would describe the following thing. In a way, this is generative AI. You, know, you can ask, say, you know, write a report on the Wisconsin primaries in the voice of William Shakespeare, and it will come up with something. So maybe this is something where AI can replace displaced speechwriters. So there's a kind of mimicry of being able to hear the way a person talks and recognize the sentence cadence and the vocabulary and the ways that uh, the pitch rises and falls. And, and, and people either do that or don't. The other is, I find most writing hard for books or magazine articles or even web posts, but I find writing to be spoken easy, uh, that writing speeches or writing radio segments or whatever, because you just say it to yourself in your head and write it down. So that's something most speech writers, they like it better if they have less time for a speech because you just sit down there and you write it out the way you're saying itself to, to, to in, your, in your head, which is different from from uh, writing meant to be read on the page. And so if you have those two traits, like having blue eyes versus brown eyes or whatever, then you apply them when uh, you know what a, you know the audience a politician is going to or a corporate figure is going to address, you know, this topic, and you listen to the experts in the topic and take orders from them about what the, the leader should say, and then you just churn it out. So I, I found that kind of writing relatively easy to do. The hard part was negotiating among all the different, you know, the State Department versus the National Security Council or the Treasury versus the Federal Reserve and the president having his own particular um, aspects. I've never done speech writing since then except for myself. But I think for people who do it, it's kind of fun, whereas the rest of writing is not fun. We've got another question uh, from our own Alex, and I thank him for this. He says, how do you think social media has impacted news coverage? I think it, it must have, re have impacted it profoundly. And in some ways we can recognize and some ways that we we don't now, and maybe only will in retrospect. For example, let's think of the world of Twitter. Most normal people pay no attention to Twitter, but everybody in the media lives on Twitter. And it, it has sort of replaced the function of an old style newsroom bullpen, where you'd hear what people were talking about, or or the, the ecosystem that um, my friend Tim Krauss described in his wonderful book about the 1972 political campaign, The Boys on the Bus, and the way that after an event by Richard Nixon or George McGovern, all the reporters would get on the campaign bus and say, well, what do you think? You know, what's the lead here? What, was that good or bad? And, and so Twitter has that effect of sort of a consensus testing um, medium for people in, in the media. And that has good and bad effects too. So it, it can in, enforce groupthink. It also has a disturbing effect of promoting sort of, it gives an outsized megaphone to the most divisive, vilest, angriest voices who are there uh, shouting things out. And so I think it may give people a distorted view of how much vileness is out there compared to all the people who are not saying these vile things. Um, I have never once used Facebook for reasons we can get into later on, but I'm sure that has similar effects on other people. I think that as Twitter loses its, its, its central 
pull. It's a kind of common marketplace of opinion. Then we'll see what replaces it. I think blogs, I view Substack and other things as sort of a successor to the old golden age of blogs. I think they are good because they're another way of sort of having a different way of communicating with people. It's not the polished article. It's not the broadcast you work on and produce. It's a You can say, wow, I saw this yesterday and it was interesting. Here's why. And I think that is good just for connection. Uh, Another question from Frank in New Hampshire. In your opinion, what has been the most transformative political event you've reported on in your career? And why do you think it has such a significant impact? Huh. That's, Those are always very uh, challenging type questions. Uh, yes. You know, whether the most this or the most that. Yeah, but so what comes I think to there, mind? Maybe Malcolm almost, Gladwell's right, the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> I'll say that the, the three events that happened in my lifetime, just talking about politics, it, that I didn't particularly report on, but that strike me as turning points in American history are, number one, the Supreme Court's decision in Bush v. Gore. I think people will look on that as the the turning point of you know this century. It was the, it was the cusp between one century and the next, but that was a profound um, intrusion, in my view, by a branch of government. Without that, we wouldn't have had the current Supreme Court lineup because Gore would have been appointing these people. Without that, we would not have had the Iraq War. We probably also would not have had Barack, Barack Obama because if Gore were president, then everything else would have changed, et cetera. So that event is a moment when I thought history has turned on its axis. Um, and Gore's de- decision just to, that he, w- he would accept that. The second would be the election of Barack Obama eight years later. We were living in China then. The conventional wisdom in China is the U.S. could not possibly elect a black man as president. And there was just such profound, stunned um, astonishment in China and also discomfort that a that a person like Obama had had been elected. Uh, and the third, of course, would be the election of the Electoral College victory of Donald Trump, which almost nobody, including Trump, was foreseeing at the time. So I will have these three, those are three elections in my working lifetime that I think people look at, look back at forever as turning points in our history. Since you led with the Supreme Court, uh, Bush v. Gore, I've got to ask you, uh, I was going back and reading about some of your adventures early on, and early on that included working on behalf of the working class in the Vietnam War because they were conscripted to such a greater degree than uh, kids like you who came from, father was a physician and were much better off. It prompts, me, it prompts me to ask you just a, a direct question about uh, the Supreme Court is going to be considering affirmative action. Should class be more of a touchstone than race with respect to affirmative action? They're, they're both so important. And race has, race specifically involving African-Americans should always have particular standing in American history because of the particular history of slavery, which didn't 100% involve people from Africa, but 99.9% did. So I, I am in favor of that as having special status in our public policies. But obviously class, 
But obviously also U.S. history has been a tension between divisions of race and divisions of class. And we've had politician after politician who have tried, tried to either heal that divide or have exploited it. Uh, there's the famous uh, story by a book by C. Van Woodruff, Woodruff, C. Van Woodruff about Tom Watson, about the ways in which somebody who was originally a sort of populist unifier of blacks and whites in the South ended up becoming a pure racist. George Wallace tried to go the other direction from being a pure racist to a sort of class advocate. Huey Long had both of these elements in them. Robert F. Kennedy was never a racist, but he became a sort of tribune of of class and race uh, solidarity before he was murdered. Um, So I think that they if the Supreme Court were actually judicious, they would be thinking about the balance between these two realities in our lives. So I think that they are both ways to, uh, they're the two scales of justice, they both need to be there. Since you mentioned Robert F. Kennedy, is his entrance into this presidential race, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., or for that matter, Cornell West, going to make a difference in terms of Joe Biden's candidacy? Cornell West, I, I can say plainly, I hope that Cornell West does not make a difference um, because third parties have only a spoiler effect in modern American politics. I say that as somebody who once worked for Ralph Nader when I was a teenager in my early 20s and who urged him in 2000 to stop campaigning in Florida and in New Hampshire and in Ohio and in Wisconsin. So I hope Cornell West does not make a difference. Robert F. Kennedy I respect from him that he's running as a Democrat. It's the case that when there's a serious challenge to an incumbent within his or her own party, the incumbent usually goes on to lose. So if if Kennedy really got traction, as his father did in 1968, uh, that could weaken Biden. I think it's good... it's good for a party to have some discussion within its uh, within its, its borders and its family ties. And so if this is a discussion among Democrats about the way to advance their case in the long run, then that would be good. If it becomes a sort of kamikaze warfare, I hope that is not the case. So much more I want to talk about, but we didn't even touch upon. I probably should conclude with this talking about small town America and the amazing odyssey that you and Deb, uh, your wife, went on and all that you were able to glean from that. So much of it, I was talking about it with uh, Shannon, the producer, before we came on talking to you this morning. Uh, So much of it is optimistic. And it's a good place to end always in an interview with that kind of optimism. But I was thinking about the work of someone like Arlie Hochschild and others who have called our attention to small-town America and a lot of small-mindedness in small-town America and a lot of uh, myopia, really, and uh, uh, the sort of things that go against optimism. Maybe some... Final thoughts from you? So I think the main point that struck Deb and me in our years of traveling around the country and that we tried to convey in our book and in the movie we made with HBO and in in our, our, Our Town's Foundation reporting since then is that is, is that one's perspective on the country matters. And I say that if you come to China, one of my watchwords was China looks most imposing and threatening from a distance and looks most fragile from up close. You know, when you see there's all this high-speed rail, you think, oh my God, what can't they do? And when you go city by city and company by company and person by person, you see that all the things that are not coordinated and are are Potemkin, uh, to, to use that analogy. And I think the reverse Excuse is me, true Jim, of the I was U.S. also thinking about the, the, the gulf between China rural and, and urban, and that's oh, something yes. 
that you have to take into account whenever you talk about small town America as well. Yeah. Exactly. And we spent a lot of our time in China, although we were based first in Shanghai and then in Beijing, we traveled all over the place and went to almost every part of it except Tibet, where we never could get the special journalist visas for, for Tibet. And the contrasts there are enormous. And and I think that the, the con- contrast with the U.S. is I think the U.S. looks most troubled from a distance and looks most resilient and full of possibilities up close. And that almost every place we went, whether it was Cedar Rapids or Spokane or Greenville, South Carolina, or on down the list, people were very seriously worried about the United States they heard about in the news and felt much more confident about the United States they lived they lived in. And where they saw that you know, they were talking about the ways the schools were adapting, the ways that people were having more new sustainability projects, and the ways that uh, that um, immigrants were being absorbed, et cetera, et cetera. Small town America has always had its real parochialism and problems, and we know about that from everything in American literature. We know that about stories of people moving from the little towns to the, to the big city. The news we thought we had discovered and still believe is that things look better the more closely you look, and that perspective on America's future also needs to be considered. Are you also, uh, maybe you could say something in conclusion about being optimistic about the future of aviation since you've written about aviation and are a pilot and uh, aside from those big balloons that may be coming from the Chinese (laughs) and UFOs and whatever, what do you you see as the future of aviation? So so I'll I'll, I'll make uh, three brief points here or or at least one or two. One is for anybody who's considering being a a pilot, do it. There is, when aviation was invented 100 years ago and was really, really dangerous, the idea was that anybody who wanted to be a writer, a philosopher, an artist would want to become a pilot because you just see the world in a different way. So this has been a really important part of my life. And I think if you're on the fence, please uh, give it a try. Um, but you are an uh, instrument panel pilot. That's yes, a I, I, yes. Pilot. Yeah. yes, you, you, you want to be, um, <laughs> if you want to do it, if you want to increase your odds of surviving, you get an instrument rating. So you know how to, weather is the big threat and instrument ratings are the ways to uh, to survive weather. Uh, so, so that's point one. Point two is airlines. I was part of the deregulation of airlines during the Carter administration. I wrote all the speeches and policy papers about that. That has been a really mixed blessing. It has made air travel much cheaper on average than it used to be. And it is phenomenally safe to go on the airlines. Uh, you know, whole years go by with nobody being killed in a U.S. Uh, airline crash or, or disaster. But we all know the downside of it. It's become its own class war. You can either be in the 1% or in the 99% sort of crammed into the back of the plane and nobody, no passenger enjoys the 99% part. I think technologically, and, and I think there, that sort of is how we're, we're destined to be. It's sort of, it's the the buses and the limos of, of the air. Most of us are on the bus and a few are in the limos. Technologically, um, something has to change with the uh, the emissions problem of, of modern jet travel because it's disproportionately a producer of, of emissions and CO2 and contrails and all the rest. There's a way in which this is much harder than electrifying cars because batteries are heavy and airplanes are all about being light. And so that is the real trade-off. And I think we'll see within the next couple of years a lot of battery-powered sort of small uh, freight lines and some commuter lines that are battery-powered. A lot of these are in 
in already in, in near production and, and near certification. And I hope we will pretty soon see 10 years from now, 15 years from now, truly sustainable aviation fuel because uh, it has to be liquid, it has to be light, and airlines have to do that if they can if they are to pay their play their part in all of us surviving. Always a delight to talk to you, and as usual, we're an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, it is my pleasure, and thank you, and I'll be listening to the, your ongoing series. And I'll be listening to your podcast and reading you as well. And thanks to all of you who joined us for this live episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Thanks to all who will be hearing it in the future. And remind yourself and those you know and care about that Gray Matter with Michael Krasny is a growing community looking to grow our membership. To become a member, simply remember to go to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. My thanks to our dedicated Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Cullen, Chad, Kevin, and a special thanks to our special guest, Jim Fellows. I'm Michael Krasny.